Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this week. The S&P ASX 200 in Australia up a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up 0.9%. The Cosby in South Korea has risen two thirds of a percent. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to continue its rally and add another couple of hundred points or so at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning. Stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast, sunny periods, few showers, hot during the day. It's going to be around 32 degrees today and it's going to be mainly fine and very hot during the weekend and into next week. Temperature right now, 29 degrees, 84% relative humidity. 8.30 with the half hour news, here's Andrew Shorsky. Thank you, Peter. Uh, The number of new COVID cases here has reached the highest level in almost five months. More than 8,500 cases were reported yesterday, with close to 300 of them imported. Nine more COVID patients have died. Meanwhile, the immigration director tested positive using a rapid test. He was at work yesterday and is now in isolation. Albert Au from the Center for Health Protection said new cases would soon pass the 10,000 mark. We noticed that there is an accelerated speed of of increase of cases in Hong Kong locally in the past few days. And there is a quite rapid increase in the number of cases indicating that the transmission in the community is increasing. So there is a need for the general public to take additional precaution measures in preventing transmission and also infection. Satellite images suggest Russia is burning off large amounts of natural gas at a facility near its border with Finland. Experts say the gas had previously been exported to Germany. The BBC's Matt McGrath reports. The first indications that something was awry came from Finnish citizens who spotted a large flame on the horizon earlier this summer. Analysis of heat data from satellite images showed that gas was being burnt off or flared in significant quantities at a new Gazprom facility northwest of St. Petersburg. A team at Rystad Energy, an independent research firm based in Norway, who've been monitoring the flare, say it's burning around $10 million worth of gas every day while pumping out 9,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. A judge in Florida has ordered the U.S. Justice Department to release a redacted version of the affidavit that convinced him to approve the warrant to search former President Donald Trump's home. The FBI search of the Mar-a-Lago estate is part of a criminal investigation into whether or not Mr. Trump illegally removed documents from the White House. Nancy Gertner is a former federal judge. On the one hand, Donald Trump, in his public statements, calls for the release of the affidavit. But in the, in the statements in court, he has not. His lawyer was there, did not take a position one way or the other. What's going to happen here is that the more the details of this charge comes out, the more likely it is that if there are any charges brought later on and, and there's a public criminal proceeding, he will then claim it's impossible for him to be tried. Iranian state media says women were allowed to attend a National Football League match in Tehran yesterday for the first time since the 1979 revolution. Seated separately and asked to wear headscarves, many waved flags and wore their team's colors. Women were last permitted to watch a game during the 2022 World Cup qualifiers between Iran and Iraq. Clerics who play a big part in decision-making in Iran argue that women should be protected from the sight of men in sportswear. That's the news from RTHK. Good 
morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. Today is August the 26th and we're talking about China's extreme heat wave. Parts of the mainland have been experiencing searing temperatures for more than two months, with many rivers and reservoirs running dry because of a severe drought and scant rainfall. The Ministry of Agriculture warns that the unprecedented heat wave is posing challenges for autumn crops. Authorities are now turning to artificial rainfall and unfortunately using more coal as hydropower output plunges and electricity demand surges. And then after 9.15, we will look at the preservation of neon light signs after some iconic signs in Yamate were recently removed by the government decree. You may even have a chance to revisit some of your old favorites rescued from oblivion. Hit us with your thoughts, your questions, and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us at 2338-8266. And we're going to go straight to today's guest. We'd like to welcome Daisy Tam, who's the Associate Professor with the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing at Hong Kong Baptist University. Good morning, Daisy. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And I believe soon we will have on the line Dr. Jonyan Liu, the Program Manager for Climate and Energy at Greenpeace. Um, but first, we want to start with you, Daisy Tam. Uh, this is a big issue. Uh, this drought is, is just causing problems in so many different parts of uh, Chinese society. Uh, and it could very well reverberate uh, down to Hong Kong and, and beyond. How should we be looking at this as a as a an environmental crisis, an economic crisis, a human rights issue? I mean, it's it's very complex. Where do we start? It is a good question. I would say food touches absolutely everything on you know on the planet, and that's why it's one of the urgent questions we should address. In terms of the weather patterns and climate changes that we have seen, I think it's it's really a high time for us to be addressing these issues that we know were coming. Um, global warming and climate change is affected by and, and, and will affect uh, our food systems. So when we see these general weather patterns uh, affecting broad areas for a long period of time, such as you know the drought that we are seeing in China and the flooding in the north, uh, the heat wave in Europe, US and Japan this year, these are all examples of what global warming has is, is bringing and will bring. Um, and, and so if we see already these changes with an average temperature that has risen just by 1.1 degrees since pre-industrial levels, we can imagine if we don't hit uh, the mark, then, then things are going to get really bad really quickly. So I think when we look at um, when I mentioned that, you know, that the climate change and um, and the food system and how they are correlated, well, we need to then look at globally how we produce our food, where our food comes from. Um, we look very closely at China because that's where we depend uh, mostly in Hong Kong for our food imports. But for a place like Hong Kong, um, we import over 95% of the food that we eat. And it's not only China, we import all across the world. And this kind of food demand um, is putting a huge amount of pressure uh, on the global food system and the food supply chain. Right, but I mean, looking specifically at this this drought that's happening in China right now, I mean, when, when people say things in the future, I mean, sometimes it's very hard for people to get their heads around, but we have a real example on top of us right now. How is this drought going to affect uh, maybe maybe Hong Kong, in, like right now? I would expect prices to surge. I think this is often the first warning signal that we see. 
um, with unstable supply and availability of food, uh, price hikes are often the first response. And then perhaps we would see shortages. Um, and this is something that I say with caution because I think we do produce enough food to feed the world, yet people are still suffering from hunger and malnutrition, including a rich city such as Hong Kong. So it's not just a question uh, of availability, but it's also of access. So these are things that we need to look out for in a food secure country or city. Um, availability, access and use. And these are things that we need to invest in now before it's too late. Mm. We're, we're also uh, joined today by Dr. Junyan Liu, who's the Program Manager of Climate and Energy with Greenpeace. Uh, Dr. Liu, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, um, we, uh, we're looking at this right now, and I know, you know Greenpeace, of course, has been doing work in the environmental space for decades. Uh, but in particular, in terms of climate and energy, uh, you know, our guest, uh, Daisy Tam, has flagged food prices as one impact. What, what other ones are top of mind for you? Energy supply is going to be a big problem um, if this kind of heat wave going to hit more and more. And because we have already seen that um, energy shortage is a, a severe problem in China right now uh, because Sichuan, Hunan, and these certain provinces they really relied on hydropower. However, because of the heat wave, because of the drought, um, there's very limited energy recently, and uh, the Chinese government has to have to cut a lot of the um, like industry electricity consumption and also uh, many public facilities. You can see the lightning um, has has to be cut off. Even the residents' energy use um, in some mountainous and distant areas they have been affected. So uh, it's coming a, a very I would say it's a vicious circle um, that uh, when there's a climate change, it brings us more and more extreme weather events. And when the extreme weather events came, uh, then we can see the energy supply is going to be a big problem. And they, if they go to uh, like coal power, go to nuclear power, or, or build more, even more hydropower in order to secure um, the energy supply, then we will have more and more this kind of a heat wave, this kind of a drought, this kind of a disaster. So um, I think it's becoming a, a, a very difficult moment for not only China, but also the world. Yeah, I've got an Regarding e- the energy security. Mm, I've, I've got an email here from James, uh, who kind of hits on a lot of different points in rapid fire. So, But they do touch on some of the things you, you just mentioned, uh, Dr. Liu. James says, uh, good morning. When will China acknowledge climate change and take some responsibility rather than just saying it's a Western conceit against it? The surging middle class in China is using more energy than ever before and emitting more pollution than ever before. This will not change anytime soon. We are seeing around the world obvious evidence of extreme changes in weather. China's indifference will be at its peril. Cloud seeding for fake rain is an expensive, silly exercise. China, along with all of the countries, need to agree climate change is happening now, right in front of us. Uh, even in Hong Kong, we've experienced a year of unusual weather. China cannot control the climate, but uh, he says Peking has the ability to control the country. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that, that, that hit from James, starting with uh, China acknowledging climate change? I, I think they've done that, yeah? I think China has already made its commitment 
Um, by uh, 2030, that we're going to um, expect it to have a energy uh, the, the 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 carbon emission peaking, and by uh, 2060, we're going to have carbon neutral. Um, however, it really depends on the, how Chinese government is going to uh, implement its all policies and strategies, because we have already seen that. Um, Tackling climate change is definitely not just a, a, a single policy can handle it, right? It has uh, repetitions to all kinds of systems, um, energy industry, transportation, construction, etc. So um, it's about uh, how we can implement right. um, these different parts of the policies and how we can actually, uh, you know, uh, follow the commitment and the pledge. Dr. Liu, let's go back to the heat wave uh, again. The heat wave on the mainland uh, has lasted uh, more than uh, 70 days now together with a drought. How rare is this? This is the worst heat wave ever recorded in China. Uh, since the record began in 1961, yeah. And is it expected to uh, last much longer? Do you know? Um. Probably not. Uh, we expected to have a cold wave uh, very soon, probably this next week, um, and uh, definitely going to address some of the problem in Sichuan and uh, in Hunan provinces. And uh, what have been some of the effects so far? I mean, uh, on the impact on the crops or on farm animals? I would see that uh, this is going to be uh, probably going to be an ecological disaster for um, many of these southern places, uh, southern provinces, because um, they used to be very, uh, they used to have a lot of water. But we see that um, some of uh, China's very important lakes and rivers dried up. For example, um, China's biggest freshwater lake, Poyang Lake, has shrunken by 70%. Um, due to the severe drought, and uh, only in um, Chongqing City, as you has already mentioned, that 66 rivers and 25 reservoirs dried up. So you can imagine the ecological impact of this kind of a situation that dropped. And how are people coping with the intense heat? Really difficult, I have to say. Um, as I have already mentioned, you can see some people do not even have electricity to cool themselves down. So we can see a lot of people who have to stay in the subway, um, in shelters, um, and even you know stay outside in order to um, you know avoid heat stroke and staying home. Um, and also, I see government uh, help to. Um, deliver some water or deliver some ice cubes to uh, places where people are not able to get water and the uh, um, cooling system. Um, but still, I say it's a, a very difficult time for everybody. So, uh, Daisy Tam, I know food security is one of your issues. There's been an edict from Beijing. You know, and quite often these things, they come from the top and then uh, local officials, whether it's at the provincial or the county level, have to decide how to interpret them. And one of the edicts was to protect the crops protect the food supply at all costs. And how do local officials prioritize where they're going to distribute limited water when they get an edict like that? So they like, sorry, consumers in the cities, you're going to get cut off because, you know, the word from the top is we have to protect the agricultural output. I mean, how did they prioritize who gets the water first? Daisy? Well, this is like this is a tall order, and um, it would seem that regional officials have quite uh, 
uh, difficult puzzle to solve. I can't speak to how they will interpret this, but I do see that food security has always, always been high on China's um, agenda, and that's because it is not just food, it is also about security. Um, you know, uh, just circling back to your previous question on, on how this affects the ecological damage and, and, and how it how we will see it. You know, if, if China's harvests are reduced um, this autumn, then what is going to happen is that they're going to increase imports, which adds, which adds uh, stress to the global food system and adds indirectly to the price increase of commodities that are already affected by war in Ukraine. Now, food security in China, they have already set targets, and they are uh, targets of 650 tons of output um, of grain, for example, and with the drought, the grain is heavily affected. So, you know, do you... I, I mean, this is not this is this is not even a hypothetical question anymore. If you have limited water supply, do you give it to the grains or do you give it to the people? Right. So we are now faced in um, we're faced with a situation whereby we we need to make uh, choices and resources cannot be squandered away. And the same goes for energy, because uh, you know, with the reduction in hydroelectric power, then they're like having power outages as well. You know, and do you? use the money apparently to, for air conditioning for pig farms, which apparently is, is in a bit of a crisis situation right now. Uh, or do you tell people, listen, I'm sorry, we're just going to have to, you know, slaughter all the pigs now and we're not going to be able to take care of them uh, because we have to divert the energy to other places. I mean, uh, are people going to have to make some sacrifices in their lifestyles? Well, I think changing diet is something that we can do right away and right now. You know, like if we are asking the question of, you know, do we take food away from starving people, starving kids to feed um, undernourished kids? I mean, we, the situation is impossible, right? So we need to think about resilience and building disaster preparedness because these instances are going to happen and they're going to happen more frequently. So not just acknowledging global warming and climate change is, is not enough. Like, we need to build resilience now. And so changing diets and, um, is one of the ways in which we could help towards that. The increasing food demand uh, of China, you know, you know, China is like second, world's second largest economy, but it's the biggest food importer in the world. And the increasing food demand accounts, um, increasing food demand from imports and local production ha is accounting for its population's changing diet. And like most developed economies, um, our diets, are labor and energy and uh, resource intensive. Um, there's, a, there's been a 13% increase in per capita calorie intake, and uh, there's an increasing demand of livestock product produce, um, which results in a 16% growth in greenhouse gas emissions. Right? So changing diets is one of the ways in which we could reduce the pressure. We are, in, in fact, for me, I see it as buying us more time. Uh, buying us more time in order to 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 reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, to reduce the impacts that we have on our natural environment, to so stop squandering resources such as food waste—that's uh, just irresponsible—and then changing our diets to eat down the food chain, so we so we rely less, or at least we use less energy um, to produce the kind of food that we we eat. 
Um, uh, Dr. Liu, is this going to force some reality on some agricultural producers? I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you think like in places like North America, you got like, for example, almond growers in California, hugely water intensive, and they're growing them in a desert, which requires massive irrigation and diversion of water that could be put to other uses. Um, and there may be some reality forced on them in the near future due to water shortages. Is there going to be that kind of chain force in China? Do, do they have kind of examples of water hungry crops being grown that are being grown in places they really shouldn't be requiring massive irrigation? Are they just going to have to stop that? I think the Chinese government has really authority to be aware that water shortage could be a huge problem for um, food production, especially we noticed that in some um, northwestern regions, um, um, the Chinese government uh, pushes the, the, the farmers and the local uh, authorities to change. Um, the type of the crops that they grow here, um, and uh, there's uh, some other kind of adaptation strategies around the, um, the country, like in Sichuan, um, in Yunnan, that try to find um, crop types that can bear more this kind of a drought instead of a, you know, consume a lot of water. What are some examples of those? Uh, perhaps less, more, more drought resistance, less water thirsty crops that could be grown. Um, like they change the types of uh, um, like they, they change the types of uh, of uh, um, fruits they grow. For example, um, before they did grow like bear, uh, like bears and apples, and now they change to another one. But I'm not quite sure. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I don't have a, uh, enough knowledge. All right. Yeah, I, I think I know. Like things, things are being grown. Like cotton, perhaps, is one that requires a lot of yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of water, but it's still being grown widely uh, across China, especially in, in Western China. Right. So, um, and, and the, the, Dr. Liu, I, I just want to uh, ask you about something uh, that uh, the uh, Ministry of Agriculture said earlier in a notice uh, that the heat wave um, posed severe challenges for the uh, country's autumn crops. How much of a challenge do you think it'll actually pose? I think it's difficult, really difficult to um, anticipate right now because um, although there's a, we are still suffering from the drought, but as expected, we're going to have the, uh, the rain coming really soon. However, if this rain going to address a problem, I kind of doubt because um, some meteorology scientists has already warned that this rain could cause even severe floods because uh, the, the, um, the, the atmosphere is... Uh, very unstable right now, and uh, when the cold wave came, and the land is really dry and very fragile after the um, you know 70 days heat. So um, if there's going to be an even bigger disaster later, um, you should be really cautious. So um, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think I can anticipate the consequence right now. Yeah, I mean, this is the irony of a long, a long drought like that. The ground gets so hard that it can't absorb water anymore. When the rains come, it just runs off to all the wrong places and causes flooding, but doesn't really help with things like agricultural output. I mean, if, if, no, if you think, yeah, if, so if the rains come and save the day in the next couple of weeks, I mean, then people are people in the general population, people living in urban areas. Are they going to notice the difference? Or are they just going to carry on and be like, oh, yeah, I thought I heard in the news something about it being really hot somewhere and just forget about it and move on? Um, I mean, or, or could we get another situation where if the rains don't come, you know, we start trucks full of vegetables don't arrive in Hong Kong and, you know, the, the, the shelves are bare and everybody starts to freak out. 
think the the the, the um the thing in um, this year is uh, actually quite unique and uh, astonishing, uh, even for uh, residents in urban areas, uh, because they are um, they also suffer from this heat wave. Uh, we noticed a lot of people died from heat stroke recently, um, and even back in July. Um, it's not just the seniors, not just the children that we suppose they are to they, they should be the most vulnerable community. However, uh, everybody suffered from the heat wave, and uh, we noticed that the talk, the discussion of um, how heat wave is connected with climate change and how we shall uh, tackling this kind of uh, climate disaster um, has um, rise uh, very quickly on social media and also on traditional media. So I think it's a very good sign that. Um, the, the everybody's awareness about the tackling climate change is um, kind of uh, increased very deeply. Uh, but however, I don't want we really do not want that this um, we only use the disaster as a window to you know call people's attention um, and how these climate action can continue. Um, the, the the government and also NGOs like Greenpeace shall mobilize more that um, what the action could be, what the action of the people could be. Yeah, the, you you raise a good point. I mean, who was I can't remember who it was that said, you know, never never uh, waste a good, never let a crisis go to waste. Uh, Daisy Tam, are people in China getting the message? Do they know how bad it is out there? Like, is is it getting through the media that people are dying, people are having to go to shelters, uh, and are they getting a message that this is this is as a result a, a that this is happening? Are they do they even know that at all, or is it being reported in the media? Uh, and then is it is it coming across as a message to encourage people to change their behavior or to pressure the government to change its climate policy, or is it behavior, being covered up? Yeah, but, well, behavioral change is something that is very very difficult to uh, to to engender. However, there's a recent um, survey that came out to say that 78 percent of uh, Chinese population is ready to change their diet uh, in response directly uh, to, uh, to, to to reduce pressure on, on, on the food supply chain and therefore uh, as a response to the awareness that they have on, on, on these uh, issues. So I think there is a will, but we also need to combine it with um, political drive and economic incentives in order to make this happen. Um, I guess with, you know... <laughs> When you when you ask a question about like you know growing growing water hungry plants in California, we also have that in China. Choi sum has was used to be grown in the southern part of China where there's more rainwater. Now it's being moved to Yinchuan, right? When you go to the wet market, you see that, and it's in the oh. middle, smack in the middle of China, where they are drawing up groundwater just to produce that kind of green leafy vegetables for our consumption. So you know, we are talking about. Uh, the individual uh, uh, awareness and diet change that could have an effect on the supply and demand on, in the market, but there is also the production and agriculture, which has to do with policy and land use on a, on a wider scale. And so these are all connected points. Because, I mean, you're, you're, you're in the communications business. This is very tricky for the government because on one hand, they always want to look like they have everything under control and they've got a handle on it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it might be helpful to project a little bit of an air of crisis to get people to change their behavior or to galvanize local officials uh, into, into action on these, on these issues. How do they, how do they balance that, that when they're talking about issues like a specific drought situation now where they need action and then longer term issues like climate change? 
I think like any, um, you know, make, as you say, making use of a good crisis and not, not letting it go to waste is capturing people's attention. Um, so in the sense that when we are feeling the, the burn, um, this is the time to move for policy change. And, you know, I think it's, it's often when you have these huge, big issues, these big issues such as climate change, and then you feel as an individual you are powerless. Um, well, that is not necessarily the case. The power of the crowd is strong. And so, therefore, how can we engender um, individual behavioral change? Because if everyone does a little bit, then, then the sum would be bigger than its part. So it's not so much, I mean, I'm, I'm not in communications, but I am in food security. So I think the way we deal with crisis is that in every point, if we can talk about these instances and understand that it is not just an isolated case, but rather a systemic problem and a systematic um, issue, then we need to look at how we build resilience and preparedness. And I think this is really the moment where instead of just being panicking, in, instead of everyone panicking and looking at, you know, how we have um, damaged our environment, now is the time when we need to shift. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining, joining us today. Daisy Tam is the Associate Professor at the Department of Humanities and Creative Writing at Hong Kong Baptist University and also uh, an expert on food security issues. On the second half of the show, we are going to continue to be joined by Dr. Junyan Liu, the Program Manager for Climate and Energy in Greeley. So please stay on the line, Dr. Liu. Uh, like Daisy Tam said, we are going to be feeling the burn with a high of 32 degrees today here in Hong Kong, but the weekend is looking up. It's going to be mainly fine and very hot, great junk weather uh, during the weekend, early into next week. There'll be showers here and there, but nothing we can't handle. We're Hong Kongers. Uh, thanks for joining some back chat. We'll be back after the news. And with that, stay with us for the news on RTHK3. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And we're back on Back Chat with Janice Wong and me, Andrew Work. Uh, we were joined in the first part of the show by Dr. Junyan Liu, who's a program manager of climate and energy at Greenpeace. She continues to stay with us uh, for the second part of the show. We are now joined by David Fishman, senior manager in Shanghai for the Lantau Group, a Hong Kong-based energy and power consulting firm. David Fishman, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, we, we've, we've been uh, digging into this issue for the past half hour, but we want to know where specifically are you most concerned about the impact of this drought? Well, I mean, previously we were looking at this problem being a little bit more spread out, especially as the hot weather had continued in the southwest and going through central China and in east China. I think now uh, things have gotten a little bit better with the weather turn uh, in the last couple of days. We've seen cooler temperatures, and so that means there's going to be a little bit more pressure uh, off of the grid. That being said, I think uh, Sichuan and, and maybe Chongqing are still the worrisome areas, and specifically looking at industry, because uh, industry is still not getting any power. And, and how is that lack of power? I mean, we talked a little bit in the early part of the show. If, if there are power shortages, how do they prioritize the power shortages? Who gets it first? Does it go to consumers who need aircon? Does it go to agriculture for, you know, keeping pigs and cows cooled off? Or, you know, then you've got, in, you've got high tech, you've got heavy manufacturing. Who, how do they prioritize? Who gets what first? Well, 
Right. So it would actually be a prioritization of things that are needed for health and safety and livelihood. So, of course, residential power demand uh, has the highest priority level. Uh, agricultural power demand used for uh, watering fields, watering crops, uh, or producing uh, agricultural commodities is very high uh, prioritization. After that is commercial buildings, office buildings, malls, things like that. And then you have uh, industrial power demand, so factories. Uh, and then at the very, very end of that is kind of frivolous things like uh, light shows or other just kind of uh, usages of power when you, you don't need it. Now, when you don't need to use the power in that way, uh, you know, something like that. That would be the first to go. So, amu- so an amusement uh, right now, residential and some commercial buildings uh, have their power prioritized. Right. So would like, for example, amusement parks be the canary in the coal mine? If, if uh, you know, I know there's, you know, beyond Disney, there's a lot of amusement parks in China. If they start shutting down, is it like, uh-oh, we have a problem coming? Yeah, definitely. I would think amusement parks would be considered, uh, you know, I don't know how they'd be considered. They might be considered commercial or they might be considered a frivolous use, you know, kind of entertainment uh, parks. I know that uh, generally for somewhere like here we are in Shanghai, when the light show on the Bund uh, is affected. A couple days ago, the the Bund light show, you know, all the buildings of the financial district announced they would not be lighting up the buildings and they would not be putting on their evening light show. Uh, That's, you know, the lightest form of power rationing that Shanghai would do and might even be considered a form of solidarity. I think that's that's maybe the the real canary in the coal mine is is light shows. Uh, A lot of cities have them. No, okay, uh, Doctor Liu, is this is this something that is this kind of something that you've looked at at Greenpeace? Is this hierarchy of needs in society and who gets what first? Um, based on our observation, we noticed that um, residents use this um, and to ensure the um, residents' uh, usage of energy is uh, the top priority uh, because we have to cut off the electricity consumption in firstly in the industry and then to uh, commercial buildings, um, uh, public facilities uh, like subways um, and etc. But however, um, I think the most uh, uh, dangerous situation is that even the residents' um, consumption of electricity cannot be secured. For example, in some some places in China, Chongqing, especially the distant counties, um, they have to cut residents' electricity for like all day long. And who gets cut first, rural or urban? In, um, in the industry, cut first. Oh, the industry gets cut first. I mean, but when it starts impacting residents, yeah. is, 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 it, is it the impact going to be most noticeable in the urban areas or in the rural areas? Because I know, you know, kind of the old thinking was like, always keep the people in the rural areas happy because if you don't, there's trouble. Um, but I mean, you don't want to upset too many people in the cities either. I think the rural area is going to be uh, impacted even more because um, the um, electricity, the, the grids in uh, the areas are more complicated and uh, usually they are not, they cannot ensure the energy consumption in rural areas but have to, you know, ensure the electricity usage in urban areas. Mm-hmm. D- David, have you looked at the split between urban and rural? Is that another uh, fault line that people have to, to watch out for? Uh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, so we have seen a little bit of... Uh, cuts to rural areas, especially up in northeast uh, Sichuan in parts of Guang'an and Dazhou. And uh, I think the right way, or one of the plausible ways to look at that, is that you had local 
uh, hydroelectric dams in that and you know that part of Sichuan that were supplying those local cities or those rural areas of local cities, and when they were unable to produce, that part of the country was unable, to, or that part of the province rather was unable to get more power from other parts of the province. Maybe their distribution network wasn't very uh, developed, and so as a result, you might have pockets of Sichuan that had even more severe rationing, even affecting residential power customers. And uh, certainly, I think I've, from reading some of the comments you can find online, uh, there's a discussion of, you know, why is our power getting cut? I've, I've heard they still have power in Chengdu. How come our power is being cut here? Uh, with the implication that, you know, they've made an active decision, the authority has made an active decision to cut our power and not Chengdu's power. Whereas I think it's more likely that it was, it was probably a limitation uh, of the, caused by the distribution grid. Okay, so you, you think that the sometimes those decisions are made more on technical issues, or are they made more on who can best bear it, or you know who will have more of a feeling of you know we're all in this together, solidarity, or versus being aggrieved? Do you think do you think it's more a social choice or a technical choice where the power flows sometimes? I, I think when it comes to residential customers in different parts of the country, they would all be treated quite equally. So if you end up with certain areas not able to get power, more likely a, a technical limitation from my perspective. Mm. And I just want to, I'm, I'm more interested in what's going to happen. I mean, uh, you, you talked about how um, supply of hydropower to some companies and factories uh, had to be suspended because of the uh, heat wave, the drought. And um, I mean, uh, like uh, Dr. Liu was saying, they, I mean, main, the mainland is expecting some rain. But uh, if this uh, situation doesn't improve significantly, what can we um, expect in the winter months if there is still a low hydropower um, uh, production or output of electricity? Mr. Fisher? Yeah, it would be, it would be potentially an extended situation. Uh, even if the heat wave wraps up, and it looks like it could be, fingers crossed, that uh, we'll be seeing some cooler temperatures, the hydropower uh, reservoirs are still extremely depleted, and they're refilling from upstream very slowly uh, because of the lack of rain. This is ordinarily the flood season, and the floods uh, have apparently not come, or rather the rainy season has not come for a month and a half of, of what should be very good production time. As a result, I think you'll see low river levels for quite a while and low power coming out of the hydro hydroelectric dams for quite a while. Uh, as a result, yeah, for, for weeks or maybe even going into months, we might see some reduced capacity for hydro output in Sichuan. Now, if that stays at a level below where they can meet their full load and where they can meet their full consumption for the whole day, I, I think that means we'll be seeing extended shortages. Uh, maybe some industrial demand will be able to come back online where other industrial demand uh, would have to stay offline for longer or maybe you could see some type of rotating or rolling system uh, where different parts of the economy have to take cuts for longer. Uh, you know, this, this situation theoretically, you, and, and of course you're pinning it on the weather, right? You're waiting for it to rain. If it rains, then it rains, and if it doesn't, then you don't have power. And that's, you know, kind of an unpleasant situation to be in. Uh, going all the way through the winter, worst case scenario, uh, that it could, it could persist for quite a while. Uh, maybe coming into the spring, I think you don't have to worry about that anymore. You get the snow melt in the Tibetan Plateau, you get your rivers filling up with water definitely around that time. Uh, but we, we want to keep a close eye on it through, through the fall and into the winter uh, to make sure those, those river systems are getting enough rain. 
So, Do Mr. Fishman, will this mean that individuals will have to pay more for electricity? Uh, likely not at this point. Uh, definitely not residential power users, because residential and commercial power users, especially residential power users and uh, agricultural power users, have still regulated power tariffs. So no matter what happens on the generation end, the average residential power customer doesn't have to worry about their tariffs going up. As for industrial and commercial power users, maybe. It depends on how they were getting their power before and how much they were paying for their power. Remember, power's already been fairly expensive in China over the last year for industrial power users over most of the country. And there is a price cap in the Chinese power market, which means it's not supposed to be able to go any higher. It was already at the cap, which is a bad, you know, a sad thing to say that the prices can't go any higher because they're already at their maximum. Uh, but that could be the case here, that even though supply has been impacted, prices might not see that much change unless there was reform to the actual pricing structure. And the, one of the cruel ironies of this is that I understand one of the uh, industrial sectors that is having their power cut and having to reduce output are people producing solar power, uh, sol solar panels. Uh, and so if companies wanted to turn to independent power production from solar, they're, they're, having, they're struggling with that, too, because the solar panel production has been, been uh, inhibited. Yeah, that's right. Sichuan is a, one of the national manufacturing bases for, for polysilicon. Uh, I think I've seen something like 13% maybe of China's polysilicon is produced in, uh, in Sichuan. It's also an important manufacturing base for lithium, which is an important upstream component of batteries. Uh, so between uh, solar production and uh, battery production, the energy sector overall will be taking uh, a little bit of supply chain uh, problems because of Sichuan's lack of power. Gotcha. Not, not to mention they're having to turn back to coal because of reduced availability of hydropower. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Sichuan has, you know, about 18 gigawatts of coal-fired power. Ordinarily, those, that coal would be not really used right now during the rainy season because your hydro would all be producing so well. And then in the drier seasons, going through the winter months, they would be using some of that coal power. So they could switch them on and off throughout the year. Right now, they have to use them during the, during the season when they ordinarily would not be using this power. Uh, and additionally, all of Sichuan's neighbors that have any type of uh, high-voltage line connection that can export to Sichuan are, are doing that mostly by running more coal-fired power plants in their own provinces and sending what they can to Sichuan. Which, of course, is not helping China's climate change agenda. Um, Dr. Liu, uh, before we move on to the next part of the show, I'm wondering, have we missed anything? We've talked about the impact of high heat and lack of rain uh, in terms of water and energy uh, and agriculture. But are we missing anything else? Like, for example, are lower water tables releasing more toxic uh, heavy metals into water supply? Are there any other issues that we're missing like that? haven't detected this kind of a problem yet, um, but uh, we also noticed uh, that uh, bushfire is uh, now another big threat to uh, China and um, Hunan provinces because of the very long-lasting heat wave and drought. Um, the, the, all the trees are dead and they are very easy to uh, get burned. And uh, we noticed uh, that that's already um, at least 14, 14 yeah, uh, bushfires around Chongqing very close to its um, a main city, and also um, I think um, uh, Dr. Uh, 
Mr. Fisher has already mentioned that the power system is very important, but I think that another big problem is the grid. Um, how our grid can handle this kind of a, you know, extreme situation in the future, um, I think that's a big question mark. Okay, we've uh, t tackled some tough issues today. I mean, forest fires in, in China, then also in Europe this summer. I'm from British Columbia, where we're, you know, we're almost getting overused to it, like, like the Australians. But uh, hearing about them in places like China is definitely uh, a warning signal. Thank you very much to our guest today, Dr. Junyan Yu, who's the Program Manager of Climate and Energy for Greenpeace, and also to David Fishman, Senior Manager in Shanghai for the Lantau Group, which is a Hong Kong-based energy and power consulting firm. Uh, great uh, discussion with them today. A uh, couple of quick hits from the email uh, bag coming in. Uh, Rebecca says, why is there not a greater conversation about reducing meat consumption? Hong Kong has one of the highest per capita rates of meat consumption in the world, and meat has a huge impact on carbon emissions and water use. Thank you, Rebecca. We did talk about it a little bit in the first part of the show, and I'm sure it'll come up again. Uh, um, Peter has a very long email for us, basically taking shots at the United States uh, for although they've rejoined the Paris Agreement, he says that, you know, he, he highlights when they didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, uh, uh, Barack Obama policy and the Paris Agreement. Peter, uh, you sent this as an email. I'm going to encourage you to put it on our Facebook page so everybody can read it, including your links. Uh, which includes a uh, discussion about the, how the U.S. military was exempted from the United States carbon targets uh, and notes that China is on track to achieve its pledge to achieve carbon neutrality before 2060, largely consistent with the Paris Agreement. So, Peter, I'm going to encourage you to put the whole missive on our Facebook page because it is lengthy, uh, but, yeah, I think some people would get something out of it. So... Moving on to the next part of the show, uh, we're going to be discussing the neon lights, which, have, you know, I've lived in Hong Kong since 1996, always been a huge part of the, the Hong Kong scenery and part of the city's appeal. But some of them are coming down. Another one in Yamate recently. And to join us to discuss this, we have Cardin Chan, who is the general manager for Tetra Neon Exchange. Good morning, Cardin. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us today. Hey, tell us, what is Tetra Neon Exchange, and, and, and what are you guys up to in the neon lights sector? Uh, Tetra Neon Exchange is a registered, like, um, non-profit-making organization dedicated to conserving Hong Kong neon signs and neon culture. And we were, we were officially, officially in business uh, since 2020. Okay, and... and why? I mean, I love neon signs, but maybe tell us why you founded the group and why it's what you're doing is important. Uh, the group actually was not founded by me. Uh, I, but, it, I mean, on personal level, um, neon signs actually uh, 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 give, us, like, give me like special meaning because I grew up in the 90s and 80s in Hong Kong. Like, uh, uh, the streets were full of neon. And to me, it was like, um, it was like, it was like a, a sign of home, you know. Uh, and then, and then eventually I, I moved away from Hong Kong and then I realized, like, when, whenever I came back to visit, um, I just realized, like, the, the, the rapid disappearance or the drastic disappearance of, um, neon signs. And that gave me, like, some sort of, like, a wake up call. And then I partnered, I, I got, um, uh, invited to join, uh, to run Petronion Exchange. And then that, that was how we started. And then we would like to actually, like, we have been, I uh, dedicated ourselves to actually save the neon signs in the city that could not actually be kept 
uh, uh, the original location so that we could actually use them as like a tangible means for us to tell stories, different kinds of stories. For example, like why Hong Kong neon uh, signs is a kind of art form or how it actually like brings Hong Kong uh, the beautiful uh, uh, title, The Pearl of the Orient. Uh, and then also like uh, the the the, the the industries and then the stores or even the area development that um, uh, embody or represented by neon signs as well. I think I've got somebody who might be aligned with you, but uh, maybe is questioning the neon signs as well. An email from James. He says, mm -hmm. neon signs have for a long time been iconic in Hong Kong. I remember mm -hmm. looking up at Nathan Road when I first arrived 27 years ago, and mm -hmm. they look great in Wong Kai Wai films. However, are they still necessary? Do people go to restaurants or massage parlors due to a neon sign? How much do they cost? Is it a waste of energy? I don't want Hong Kong to become more bland. So if there's no great cost in maintaining neon signs, let them shine bright, says James. Um, it sounds like he loves them, but he's also asking some of the questions. I mean, uh, how, how costly are neon signs? Are they, are they expensive from a, uh, from a monetary point of view or from an environmental impact view? Well, I think uh, uh, we, we first need to actually understand like how neon signs are actually made. Uh, uh, as far as we know, because we actually spend so much time uh, with neon masters or neon people in the, from the industry, you know. Uh, and then we actually, the more that we actually understand neon signs, the more we realize actually uh, uh, almost every part still is uh, made by hand. So it is like artisanal, you know. And I, I, that's one part of like our our jobs is to help people understand the value or the significance of neon signs and help them understand like uh, if we, we would like them to rediscover Hong Kong neon so that they would actually be able to appreciate them and also to cherish them. Of course, like neon signs, of course, is, like everything else, they have like pros and cons, right? And and because it's an art form, because it's like artisanal and craftsmanship, of course, like the price tag would not be cheap, you know, because of the living Hong Kong, like standards in Hong Kong. We have to think about that. We have to take that into consideration as well. Uh, and, and whether it saves energy, I think if, if, if we believe something is worth saying, of course, we will find ways to actually uh, 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 make it viable to stay, you know, you understand? Uh, and, and I think like we, we actually have uh, interactions with like um, people in the industry. They actually say like there are different ways you could actually uh, save energy, of course. Uh, but of course, because it is a, a, a kind of craft, unlike, for example, like other forms of um, advertisements, like LED or LED screens, uh, probably uh, neon signs could not actually do a lot of effects that LED or LED screens could do. But it doesn't mean like it doesn't deserve like a, a place to stay. That's right. my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Ms. Chan, you said uh, your group has been collecting a lot of uh, old neon signs. Uh, how many do you have? Uh, so far, we have got like around 40-something, uh, big and small, since we, were, uh, since we started our conservation work. And so now, what are you going to do with them? I, actually, we, we are going to have, well, not going to have, but... Um, uh, preparation for our first ever outdoor exhibition is um, uh, is happening right now. Uh, it is in Central as part of the Summer Fest. Uh, we actually restored a, a, a few neon signs uh, that we preserved over the past two years, uh, mostly uh, restaurant related this time. 
uh, we we actually worked very hard. It, I think it is kind of unpre- unprecedented uh, 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 for people to actually restore uh, neon signs this way or on this scale as well. Uh, we worked very hard with um, local neon masters to help us explore different ways or experiment, you know, uh, how to actually not only to restore the cladding, the outside of the signs, or not to just repair the tubes, but we actually have to figure out how to actually strengthen the structure so that they could be safe to be on display. And you said it's going to be shown in Central. I think it's down near the Ferris wheel. You've got a Facebook page, right? And I think I've seen the picture down in there. Yes. And, yes. and how long is that going to, when does it open and how long will it run for? Uh, actually, the signs are currently lit uh, every night, unless like, for example, like when, when we had to be uh, prepared for typhoons and the sure. signs needs to come down and switched off as well for safety reasons. But other than that, unless like we encounter really difficult like technical issues, otherwise, uh, people or public are welcome, is welcome to actually appreciate the outer beauty of the neon signs every night until um, the 18th of um, September. Uh, but uh, we, we are also like uh, preparing the exhibition rooms as well, uh, which are currently not open to public. And that, when you say the exhibition room, is that going to be an mm-hmm. indoor space somewhere in Hong Kong? I, it, it, it's just, they are just basically underneath our beautiful, beautifully restored neon signs. <laughs> Okay, gotcha. So, you you slipped in a mention of neon masters. Is is yeah. you know is this a little bit like bamboo scaffolding in Hong Kong? Is this a law? Is this a dying craft where you you've got a bunch of you know octogenarians, nonagenarians who know how to do this, or or are there another generation of neon masters rising up to take their place? I. I do. I do feel like they do have like a, 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 a lot in common. I mean, between uh, neon masters and also like bamboo bamboo theater builders. Uh, uh, it takes years of practice, like uh, continued practice, uh, to actually achieve like what they could actually do. Uh, I'm. I must say. I would not actually want to describe it as dying, but it's going through like uh, transformation, and and that's another part of our job. Where, like we hope we could actually help uh, create a, a healthier, uh, most prosperous like environment for um, neon industry to thrive, and then in order to actually attract a new blood to actually join the industry. But uh, yes, I think there is a gap that we need to definitely like to catch on before the last. Um, uh, neon masters actually retire. Are there are there any other centers of, of neon mastery in the rest of the world? Because I can't think of any. Like, I mean, uh, when I think about my travels, I don't think anywhere has as quite a vibrant neon light scene as Hong Kong. Are, are there? Is there? Does Hong Kong have any competition in, in the neon mastery? I, as far as I know, there is no competition <laughs> held or whatsoever. Um, they are very um, a, a solitary uh, people. They, they usually just work in the studio, and then, uh, as far as I know, uh, they, they just like to focus on their craft and getting signs done. They, they, they probably, as a whole, they rarely would actually talk to each other. Really, it sounds mm. sounds very romantic in a sense. Is is the <laughs> is the regulatory environment in Hong Kong uh, favorable for for more companies to put up neon signs? Like we hear about signs being forced to be taken down, either because yeah. they were put up illegally. It's, I don't think it's the neon; it's the issue. Is it? Is it? Isn't it usually they're too big or they're poking out into the street where they didn't have permission? I, as far as 
I know regulations, some sort of regulations were always in place, but whether they were executed to this, uh, to, to the standard, probably, uh, uh, it was in question. Uh, uh, some of the people in the industry actually shared with me. Uh, but I think like since 2010, I, uh, uh, the implementation of uh, the implementation of um, the minor works control system and also the signboard control system uh, I, I executed by um, the buildings department. I think we we saw uh, quite a bit of large scale demolitions uh, because most of the the signs uh, have become uh, part of the the buildings now. Right. Uh, and then any unauthorized structures. Uh, had to be removed uh, uh, gradually. Mm. Right. Ms. Chan, just one uh, final question. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned about your central exhibition and you mentioned mm-hmm. your exhibition room. Um, will, will the exhibition room be like a permanent uh, exhibition for these signs? Or, I mean, where will they go after these exhibitions are over? Uh, this is like a, a pop-up exhibition for us. Uh, uh, of course, like we would, we, we we invested so much like into this. We pour our hearts out into this as well. Uh, it's not just about us. It's about like neon uh, uh, masters and also like really to actually send a message across. Like people, please like rediscover this before it goes. And of course, we want to actually uh, have an extension of life for uh, our pop-up exhibition. So uh, we are in search of like uh, the perfect location. Uh, 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 in, somewhere in Hong Kong, uh, so that we could actually like um, place it somewhere, and then uh, people that uh, more people could would be able to appreciate neon. All right, I know I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing more of it. I'll definitely get on your. I know I checked your Facebook page, saw a lot of my friends are already following, so I'll get on there. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you very much to Cardin Chan, who's the general manager for Tetra Neon Exchange, trying to keep part of our Hong Kong heritage alive. Right, that's your back chat for this week. Uh, today, wrapping up with Andrew Work and Janice Wong. Thanks so much to you for listening, calling, and getting in touch online. Today's show was produced by Yuki Tang, and our sound man today is James. Please make sure you tune in Monday for more political chit chat on Back Chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Uh, looking at today's temperature, we are going to be having sunny periods and a few showers. Uh, it's going to be hot. We're going to be feeling the burn at 32 degrees, but the weekend is going to be mainly fine and very hot during the weekend. And then early into next week, a few showers here and there, but generally, it's going to be a good one. The temperature is now 29.